I'm actually shocked at how little awareness there is around the actual research on this topic of, of caffeine and energy levels. Um, caffeine is the most widely consumed drug in existence. And this is not to say that I don't consume it sometimes, I, I do. And I'm not, just to let people know, I'm not anti-caffeine. But I am pro-using caffeine in a smart, intelligent way that doesn't lead to harmful results, that isn't counterproductive. And most people are using it in a totally counterproductive way. Um, and the reason why is because they're being sort of tricked by the caffeine. Caffeine is this insidious sort of thing where it actually, I'm, I'm anthropomorphizing it a little bit, it doesn't actually have devious intentions, but the effect that it has is that it fools us into thinking that it's giving us energy when it's actually not. Well, do we have your attention? If you are white knuckling that cup of coffee, it's okay. You don't have to worry. We are not going to tell you that it is no longer a part of your life. But what we will tell you on this podcast is that if you are experiencing fatigue, if you are tired throughout the day, this is something you're going to want to listen into. Dr. Motley has an incredible conversation with Ari Witten. He's a pioneer in the space of mitochondria and energy production on a cell level. So if you experience bouts of fatigue or you find that you're hitting a slump during the day, you're going to learn about cell danger response, how the cell has an innate ability to downregulate energy production when it's in the presence of a threat. So all of this gets unpacked in this conversation, but I think you're going to find it extremely helpful what the solutions can be for you and how to remedy this naturally. So without waiting any further, let's get into today's episode. Hello, friends, Dr. Molly here, and thank you for joining us on the Ancient Health Podcast, um, where we talk all things health. And today I have a very special guest, Ari Witten, who is the founder of the Energy Blueprint, and he is going to talk all things energy and how to create metabolism about your metabolism and why you're so tired. And there's many things that he's going to talk about. I really am thankful because he has such a great website. He has such good information and his uh, supplementation line has been really, really touted as being the biggest thing for people's brain and their neurological health. So Ari, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Motley. It's a pleasure. Oh man. So I, you know, when we do the podcast, I think that I love the fact on your website that you say there's like basically, um, no fluff, no BS on, um, about like when you look at scientific research, because you can see that when you do look at different things on online, many of the supplementations that are out there really don't follow how, like, in my opinion, like biochemical reactions take place in the body. And I think that's what I really respect about what you show. And, I, and I'm learning. Uh, anytime we, we interview, I always want to learn and, and understand. So when we go through this, I, I mean, tell us all your knowledge and we're going to go through some questions. But before we start all that, people want to know more about you. They probably already know you, but can you give us a brief background about who you are and why you started this, this amazing movement? Yeah, so I'll give you the, the very brief version so we can spend as much time as possible on the sort of practical stuff. But my story is, uh, you know, I've been studying health science since I was a little kid. This is a, a lifelong passion and obsession for me. I, I'm not one of these people who was sort of like, I was an interior designer or an engineer, and then I had a health crisis, and then I decided to, you know, become a health coach or something like that. Um, this is my lifelong passion and obsession. I've always been obsessed with health. I was biohacking long before biohacking was a term. You know, the original uh, biohackers starting back in really like the 1960s, 70s were, were bodybuilders. And so I grew up in, um, you know, being mentored by bodybuilders. My older brother was a bodybuilder who was mentored by a professional bodybuilder. 
and a personal trainer as well. And so I was, from the time I was a little kid, sort of growing up in that world of bodybuilding and combined with the fact that I had a natural gift for science. You know, I was, despite being kind of a, a crappy student in high school uh, and not really being pushed to do well, not really being interested in school, I was 99th percentile on science as far as a, across the nation on uh, national standardized testing. So there was just a natural gift there combined with an obsession for health science specifically that I was devoting 10 hours a day to, you know, since the, since the time I was a little kid, this is for me truly something that even if I made no money from it, I would still be obsessed with health science. If I, if I didn't have a job, unfortunately I get to, to make a career out of it. My original obsession for many, many years was in the realm of body composition, fat loss, muscle gain, athletic performance. I was also an athlete growing up, but then in my mid twenties, everything shifted. And hence where I am now focused on energy instead of body composition and athletic performance. And the reason why is uh, I got very sick with Epstein-Barr virus. I got mononucleosis very severely. I was burning the candle at both ends. I was working a hard manual labor job at the time on a fish farm. And I was doing tons of sports and weight training, sleeping three or four hours a night in a super moldy room, partying hard. And, you know, just I was... On the, on the surface, extremely fit, but I was burning the candle at both ends. And then I got exposed to Epstein-Barr virus. It hit me really hard. I lost about 40 pounds in the span of a little more than a month of mostly almost entirely muscle tissue, largely because I couldn't eat because I had two giant balls of pus in the back of my throat um, that made it just incredibly painful to eat anything. So I was living off broth for weeks. And then the, the worst part was that for about a year after that, I was severely fatigued. And that really rocked my world. You know, as you can imagine for a guy who had always been sort of a beacon of health and fitness and an athlete, all of a sudden I didn't have any energy. And that, this was this thing that I had taken for granted my whole life up until then. I realized how much life sucks when you don't have energy. Everything, all of my hopes and dreams, my career aspirations, my school, my uh, ability to be with my girlfriend, hang out with my friends, my ability for my brain to perform, my body to perform, everything went down the drain. That's sort of what rocked my world and made me go, hey, this energy thing is really important. Then I started seeing conventional doctors who basically have nothing to offer for people with chronic fatigue for the most part. We can talk specifics about that if you want. And I'll give you some actual data on that. And then uh, I saw a lot of alternative and functional medicine doctors and realized everybody was sort of diagnosing me with adrenal fatigue. And even when they tested my adrenal function and cortisol, it came back normal. They were still diagnosing me with adrenal fatigue. I sort of became more skeptical of that whole thing, ended up spending a full year of my life doing nothing but d diving into the literature on that topic of mm. cortisol and chronic fatigue. Uh, literally a full year of my life. I probably know that literature. I, I, would, I would have to imagine better than all but a handful of people on the planet, if that. Uh, eventually, I came to the conclusion that nobody really had a good understanding of human energy regulation, not in conventional medicine, not in natural health. I said at that time, I had already been studying health science, nutrition, and lifestyle for over a decade. I was obsessed with it. So I thought, maybe this would be a good thing for me to focus all of this obsessive tendency towards. Maybe I should focus on the story of human energy and building out a scientific understanding of what the heck actually controls 
human energy levels. And that's what I've been doing for the last decade. I love the investigation portion of it because um, at, at the office, like, like I'll do a lot of like Chinese medicine. And the two things they always tell us whenever you're working with somebody is to build their blood and build their chi, their energy. And that's what they always say. Like if you're going to actually cause an organ to actually function at a highest level, you first need to supply energy. And so whenever I think that we look into um, the medical realm or the health realm, like you said, like there's not a lot of talk about mitochondrial function and like building up actual energy. It's like, well, here's how you solve a symptom. And if you have, if you have Lyme disease or parasites, here's the herbs to take to kill it off. And the thing I always say, I try to, I, I learned the hard way because I had Epstein-Barr really bad. My mom is actually going through it right now, cleaning her out pretty heavily. And she had some Lyme in the brain. Totally. It's like, I would say you need to build, build, build. You can sit there and take all the herbs in the world, but if you don't build your energy, it's not going to do you much good. So I'm so thankful for this conversation because I think everybody out there needs to know that if you're chronically fatigued and we can go into Epstein-Barr virus as well, but I want to ask some basic questions. People like, I love that you say here, like you're a science buff on this. I love learning from this. I mean, I like looking at diagrams. I'm seriously like, I'll look at diagrams. I love to learn pathways. And that's how I learn. I always learn like visual pathways. And sometimes with a patient, like I'm literally like going, well, if this doesn't create this, they may have a block here. I'm not saying I'm great at it. I'm saying I love the process. So let's start off uh, and people know about you now. So let's start off with fatigue. What are like the most common causes of fatigue in our culture today? What do you find to be the most common? At the initial part of when I started delving into this, I really, I, I certainly didn't have everything figured out, you know? And so I started with some, some basic observations. Hey, when we don't sleep well, we're pretty fatigued the next day. So there's clearly a correlation. There's a connection between our sleep and our energy levels. What, what are the mechanisms that underlie that? And so I would spend a few months on that. What about this story of like exercise? Why do people who exercise have more energy levels than people who are sedentary? What are the sort of physiological mechanisms? I spent a few months building out an understanding of that. Um, nutrition clearly plays a huge role. What are the actual mechanisms of how nutrition relates to cellular energy production? Um, and, and on and on and on. And I, so I eventually spent years doing this on these different topics. And I built out a list of like 150 different mechanisms and physiological pathways that are in one way or another directly or indirectly involved in, in energy production. But it really wasn't until the work of Dr. Robert Navio came out uh, with the cell danger response that I was able to take this, all these, this years of stuff and this 150 mechanism pathway long list that I had created of all these different sort of disparate topics and put them into some kind of coherent framework, a synthesis of what is actually regulating and controlling human energy levels. His work that this paper, The Cell Danger Response, was a seminal paper and, in my view, revolutionizes our understanding of how human physiology works and especially how human energy regulation works. And what it does is it, it puts mitochondria at, in, in the words of Dr. Robert Navio, at the center of the wheel of metabolism. It is the hub of everything that's happening metabolically in our body. And metabolism is the entirety of all the biochemical interactions in our body. So mitochondria are at the center of that. Mitochondria always taught to us in high school and college and graduate school, physiology, biology courses as just the powerhouse of the cell. That's the thing that everybody remembers. Mitochondria, powerhouse of the cell. We're sort of 
taught about them as if they are these mindless energy generators that just take in carbs and fats and pump out ATP, pump out cellular energy. But in fact, what we know from Robert Navio's work, who synthesized many decades of, of work, all kinds of work from researchers all over the world around mitochondria, is that they are much more than just energy generators. It turns out that they are like the canaries in the coal mine of our body. They are these exquisitely sensitive environmental sensors. They're not just producing the energy, they're deciding whether or not to produce the energy. Okay. And just, just the same as like, there are many parts of an engine in a car, you know, the, the pistons or the crankshaft or the, the whatever else, the gasoline or the, this part, the spark plugs, you know, there's many different parts that are involved in that engine working and producing energy to power that car. But none of those parts I just mentioned are actually deciding whether or not that car is going to be stopped or driving 65 miles per hour down the freeway. That is actually the job of the person sitting inside the car, turning the ignition key, starting the engine, deciding whether to push on the brake or the accelerator pedal. The mitochondria are sort of doing both. They're involved in the production of energy, but they're also deciding whether or not to produce energy. And they do that based on the amount of danger signals that they're interpreting, okay? mm -hmm. based on the amount of threats that they're detecting. And they're, so they're constantly asking the question, are we under attack? Is it safe for us to produce energy? And to the extent that they're perceiving that the environment is safe, that the body is not under threat or attack or stress of, of any significant kind, it produces abundant, abundant energy. That's the default. But to the extent that they're picking up on danger signals, they are turning down the dial on energy production and shifting resources towards cellular defense. Okay. So oh. in other words, when we are under attack, when we're under stress, our body is designed to turn down energy production as a response to that, as an intelligent adaptive response. If this sounds like a strange idea, just think of the last time you had a cold or a flu or COVID or something. What's one of the classic symptoms? Fatigue. But this is why our body is designed to do that. Now, what kind of danger signals do, do our mitochondria pick up? And forgive me for presenting a long-winded answer to your question here. I just no, want to present great. this, this, right, this context because once we understand this context, now we can talk about all these specific causes and how this interacts with the mitochondria, this, this machinery that's deciding how much energy to produce. What kind of stressors can the mitochondria pick up? It turns out basically anything and everything. They can, they can detect threats or stresses, everything from psychological stress to environmental toxicants, to leaky gut, to poor nutrition, to circadian rhythm disruption, sleep deprivation, to um, you name it, respiratory infections, physical injury, physical overtraining. They can detect all of these sources of stressors and they respond to any of them by turning down the dial on energy production and shifting resources towards cellular defense. So there are many different potential ways that this can happen. Some of the most common ones, and there's sort of two different contexts here. There's sort of the severe debilitating chronic fatigue syndrome, ME-CFS, you know, people who are largely bedridden with, with actual ME-CFS. And there's the much more common sort of chronic fatigue that is pervasive in our society that affects 50, 60% of adults where they are lacking the energy that they had when they were younger. 
and so we can understand energy and fatigue on a spectrum. One end you have debilitating chronic fatigue, one end you have youthful high energy levels. Most adults are somewhere in the middle. Okay, and what we obviously want to do is move towards the, the high energy end of that spectrum. And so this isn't a black or white thing. This isn't about specific medical diagnoses. This is about understanding how the energy production machinery works and optimizing it so it produces more energy. So you feel more energetic. So some of the most common causes, poor nutrition, of course, circadian rhythm disruption and sleep deprivation are huge. Light deficiencies and toxicities are huge breathing, abnormally breathing dysfunction, which is a widespread problem that affects most people, um, is another big factor. Lack of hormetic, well, I won't go there yet. The environmental toxicants are a big one, and we can also have things like mold exposures. We can have things like um, uh, respiratory tract infections or other kinds of infections that become severe. These can, are often triggers for full-blown CFS. And yeah, there are potentially psychological stress certainly is a big one. Not sleeping enough is a, is a huge one. There, there's many potential things and they, they interact, right? It's usually not, for most people, it's usually not just one thing. Sometimes it is. Sometimes like, you know, a few days ago, I was having a conversation with a woman who was in some famous incident in the UK in this, in this town where there was severe lead poisoning of everybody in the town when she was like 11 years old. And ever since then, she's had severe fatigue for like 20 years, 30 years. So sometimes it's like, it's, it's clearly this one thing that just was a massive assault to the system and caused illness. But for the vast majority of people, it's, a, it's usually a combination of circadian rhythm and sleep disruption, kind of weakening the system, poor nutrition and poor gut health weakening the system, some exposure to environmental toxicants weakening the system, not enough sleep, chronic psychological stress, not enough recovery, uh, and, and so on. So we have these sort of mixes of different factors and all of them working to shut down the mitochondria, shut down energy production. It's like the mitochondria almost like a, they act like almost like a thermostat in a way. Like if you had all this, like, it's, it's like great. It's like, if I have too much stress in my body, I'm turning it all the way down. And that makes total sense because like a lot of patients that do come in, like that, that's their biggest complaint is that when they're fighting off an infection, and I'm learning this just now, or like, they'll say, well, why am I not getting more energy? And that makes total sense. Cause like we always say in Chinese medicine, they'll say this way chi or defensive chi. And they say a lot of your electrical signals actually go to the surface of the skin. And I'll, that makes complete sense. So if you're out there and you're having complete fatigue while you're fighting off something, you need to look at these mechanisms, these, these outside and stressors. Now you, you mentioned this, like on a side note, we talked about like leaky gut or nutrition. And I love what we, cause we're going to talk about your, your supplementation, Well, this looks awesome. Um, what, like, what's the role of that? Like, I mean, we know like in our American culture, we have different nutritional <laughs> values, but what is, how big is the effect of nutrition on your energy levels? The effect of nutrition as a whole. Yeah. It's massive. Of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's many, many different ways that nutrition interacts with health and, and just to talk specifically within this story of, of energy and mitochondrial function. How does nutrition interplay with that? Well, um, number one, nutrition interacts with our circadian rhythm. And our circadian rhythm is our biological clock. It influences many, many different hormones and neurotransmitters and other physiological pathways that directly influence energy regulating machinery, either at the level of the brain and neurotransmitters or through hormones or through and through, I should say, um, mitochondrial function. And there's, there's many ways that that can happen. 
it in, nutrition interacts with our blood sugar regulation. Blood sugar directly interacts with mitochondrial energy production. If you've got certainly hypoglycemia, you're not providing enough fuel to the mitochondria. It's pretty straightforward. But if you've got hyperglycemia, chronic high blood sugar, or spikes into very high blood sugar levels, it's important to understand, and I think most people don't understand, that that energy excess, the high levels of blood sugar, is itself directly cytotoxic. It is toxic to the cell, it's toxic to the mitochondria. And it is itself interpreted by mitochondria as a danger signal, as a signal that they will shut down or turn down the dial on energy production in response to. So if you are either chronically spiking blood sugar levels very highly, or if you have insulin resistance and you have chronic high blood sugar levels, you've got a chronic danger signal in your body. Now, related to that, body composition. Nutrition, of course, massively affects body composition. And if you've got excess body fat, it's important to understand that excess body fat is not just this inert tissue. It's biologically active and it's producing compounds. It is uh, often viewed as an endocrine organ, as a, as a hormone producing sort of, you could think of it as a gland or hormone producing organ in our body. And one of the things that it produces is what's called adipokines. And these are basically inflammatory cytokines. So mm. as a result of simply carrying excess body fat on our body, we are chronically producing low levels or sometimes moderate or high levels of inflammatory cytokines that are circulating in our body. Now, those inflammatory cytokines are interpreted by your mitochondria as a danger signal. You know, I, I gave this list before of all these different things from poor nutrition to environmental toxicants to circadian rhythm and sleep disruption to, you know, respiratory tract infections to physical stress and overtraining um, to psychological stress. How could the mitochondria possibly detect all of these totally different things? Well, it's, it's not because it's got a, you know, a, a receptor for psychological stress and a receptor for um, this environmental toxicant and that environmental toxicant. It's, it's because almost all of these sources of stress eventually converge on a few different pathways. They increase oxidative damage, they increase inflammatory cytokines, uh, or they cause physical cell damage. And then you get leakage of cell contents, um, leakage of mitochondrial DNA and other contents in the mitochondria into the bloodstream, which itself, which the mitochondria actually do have receptors for and act as a danger signal. So it can interpret virtually every type of stressor. The excess body fat itself is secreting inflammatory cytokines. So it is basically sending a signal chronically in your body that there's danger, there's stress present. So, and the mitochondria don't interpret that differently, whether it's a respiratory tract infection or whether it's environmental toxicant exposure or it's excess body fat, they just respond to, hey, there's danger present. So, so nutrition obviously impacts body composition, body composition in turn impacts mitochondrial function. Nutrition, of course, impacts gut health in a massive way as well. Um, and there's many layers to that story. Um, but of course, the quality of our microbiome and the quality of our uh, gut barrier integrity, both of those in turn have a massive influence on what's called the gut mitochondria axis. So there's many mechanisms through which uh, what's going on in the gut impact 
the, the directly on the mitochondria and a healthy gut means healthy mitochondrial function and the opposite is true also unhealthy gut means unhealthy mitochondrial function and, and we can dig into some of the mechanisms why but that's the, the sort of the very quick overview of how nutrition ties into this energy and mitochondria story I wasn't distracted. I think it's such great information. I had to write it down on because like the gut mitochondria axis, people out there research that is amazing. When you say when you have excess adipose tissue, adipokines, the body uses that as a gland, as its own particular gland. I am telling you, like that's something I'm going to research because that would explain to me like a lot of the signals we get, like some of the patients. So if you have excess weight that you don't want, that's producing those cytokines and you're actually creating inflammatory states and you are going to drain yourself of energy. The, such good work. Okay. So when we're talking about creating the energy now, we know these things are the, the effects from the environment. People are going to come to me and they'll say, well, doc, um, in the midday or after the midday, I just want my, my piece of chocolate or my caffeine, you know, my coffee or something. What's your answer to those? Like when people just say like, why, what's the big deal about creating energy? Like, I mean, why don't I just have my, you know, my morning coffee and my two o'clock coffee and my and my chocolate? What what do you, what's your answer for that? I would first say, how's it working out for you so far? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the, it wouldn't it be great if if the, the all? I mean, I would sort of be out of a job if caffeine and stimulants actually were a real solution to to yeah. our energy, to our fatigue problems. Um, they're not, of course, but most people don't understand why, and this is a very insidious thing. I'm actually shocked at how little awareness there is around the actual research on this topic of, of caffeine and energy levels. Um, mm -hmm. Caffeine is the most widely consumed drug in existence. And this is not to say that I don't consume it sometimes. I, I do. And I'm not, just to let people know, I'm not anti-caffeine. But I am pro-using caffeine in a smart, intelligent way that doesn't lead to harmful results that isn't counterproductive. And most people are using it in a totally counterproductive way. Um, and the reason why is because they're being sort of tricked by the caffeine. Caffeine is this insidious sort of thing where it actually, I'm, I'm anthropomorphizing it a little bit, it doesn't actually have devious intentions, but the effect that it has is that it fools us into thinking that it's giving us energy when it's actually not. Now, here's what I mean by that. Let me explain how caffeine actually works in, in our system, and then I'll explain why it's not doing what people think it's doing. And I know people are skeptical so far, and they're, they're angry that I might be threatening their, their coffee routine. So just hear me out. Just tone down the skepticism for, for a minute. Hear me out. I promise I'll help out. So we have this, this balance of, of different neurotransmitters in our brain. Some are stimulatory, some are inhibitory, stimulating and relaxing. And they're designed to maintain a certain level of activation, a certain level of, of wakefulness and, and energy or, and or relaxation. Okay? Mm -hmm. um, and that also differs depending on the time of day. We, we have a different balance right now as we're talking than we will 12 hours from now when we're asleep at night. Right? And that balance is maintained in a sort of regulated way by the brain. The brain is trying to maintain a certain sort of roughly precise level of activation versus inhibition okay we don't want to be bouncing off the walls like we're on crack all day the brain's not trying to be there and we also don't want to show up to interviews like this and be like well let me tell you about caffeine you know, <laughs> you know right like we we need to maintain a certain energy right and 
the way that, that caffeine works is it interacts with one of these neurotransmitters in the brain called adenosine. Adenosine is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. So basically we have all this adenosine floating around in our brain. Adenosine hits the adenosine receptors on the brain and it triggers a cascade that basically lowers our energy levels, makes us tired and sleepy. Now there's an appropriate time for that. This is in intelligent design. We, sometimes we want to be tired and sleepy, right? And so that's, this is part of that mechanism. But we have a certain amount of adenosine floating around all the time so that we're not again, overly stimulated, manic, like we're on crack or something like that. What caffeine does is the caffeine molecule goes in and interacts with that adenosine receptor, just like adenosine does. The only difference is instead of triggering the cascade that adenosine triggers, it actually just plugs up the receptor. So it goes into the adenosine receptor and it just sits there and it blocks the adenosine from getting it. So by blocking a neurotransmitter that would otherwise be creating an inhibitory, relaxing, lowering your fatiguing sort of state, mm -hmm. by blocking that, it's creating a energizing, stimulating effect. And that mm -hmm. is the basis for caffeine's stimulating effect. That's why it's a stimulant. It also has some interactions with adrenaline and dopamine that also are tied into this, but the majority of the effect is from adenosine, um, blocking adenosine specifically. Now, the problem with this, well, first let's get to the benefit. There is a benefit and the benefit is clear. We have a huge amount of research showing that people who take caffeine right after they take it, they get boosts in energy levels, they get boosts in physical performance, they get boosted in cognitive performance, reaction time, right? wakefulness, all these different measures are genuinely boosted after you take caffeine. Mm. The problem is that occurs in what's called caffeine-naive people. That's what's <laughs> called in the literature. And caffeine-naive means people who don't normally consume caffeine. When you take somebody who doesn't normally consume caffeine, you give them caffeine, you get all these amazing benefits for a few hours. Problem with this is that the brain, as I said, likes to maintain a certain balance of these of stimulation and inhibition. And when you take caffeine, you are disrupting that balance, okay, with some yeah. benefits. But um, there's an expression from a famous economist, Thomas Sowell. He said, "There are no solutions in life; there are only trade-offs." And I think mm -hmm. this is such a this is such a great quote because the more I think about it, the more I see this in every area of life. And it's certainly true in the case of caffeine. You do get a benefit, but there is a trade-off. So what is the trade-off? The trade-off is, again, the brain likes to maintain a balance. You're disrupting that balance with caffeine. What does the brain do as an intelligent creature, as an intelligent system? The brain says, oh my gosh, we're being overstimulated. What are we going to do in response to that? Let's create more adenosine receptors. Let's create more oh, adenosine. Man. So the brain adapts to the overstimulated state when it occurs chronically, when it occurs daily, it adapts to that by increasing the amount of adenosine receptors and the amount of adenosine molecules floating around in the brain. What does that do? It means that it does a couple of things. One, it increases your caffeine tolerance. And that's why people end up drinking three, four, five, six cups of coffee a day is because they find they need that much now to get their brain into a wakeful state, and that's to overcome all of the adaptations in, these in this adenosine system that they've actually created through the caffeine habit. So that's mm -hmm. number one. 
more importantly, in your baseline state, when the caffeine is not in your system, you have increased adenosine signaling, which means the amount of adenosine molecules hitting adenosine receptors, triggering this cascade of lowering your energy levels and your mood and your wakefulness and your cognitive function is increased. So you are actually hurting your energy levels through this process. Your baseline normal levels of energy are lower now. Now there's one more piece of this story that's important because people go, well, but when I take caffeine, I feel a boost. So caffeine gives me energy. Yeah, it, it does subjectively. What you don't notice though, is that your baseline levels, your normal levels of energy pre-caffeine consumption were here, up here. And then over several weeks of daily use, especially if you use it multiple times a day, your baseline levels of energy now went down here. And uh -huh. so the, the boost that you feel subjectively is actually just a boost back up to your pre-caffeine normal levels of energy <laughs> and mood and wakefulness. So what you have done is not actually create any genuine boost in energy levels. Like again, you do create, if you take caffeine naive people, you give them caffeine. But in the chronic caffeine user, you are actually just getting a boost from your now lowered levels of energy and mood and wakefulness and cognitive function up to what used to be and what should be your normal levels of energy, mood, mm. and wakefulness. Hey guys, it's Court. All right, listen, contrary to popular opinion, you do not have to reach for the medicine cabinet every time you have an ailment. Trust me, I've tried every approach, everything from conventional medicine to the latest health fads, and I found that the solution for truly optimizing health is a personalized, time-tested protocol of ancient medicine. So over the last two years, myself, along with Dr. Axe, Dr. Motley, and other leading experts have crafted this new Ancient Remedies Healing at Home program. That way we can teach you the powerful approach and helping your family heal in your own home. This course and community will equip you to treat over 45 conditions, things like boosting immunity, improving digestion, balancing hormones, and increasing your vitality with natural age-old healing practices. So if you're tired of relying on a pill for every ill and you're ready to transform your health and the health of your family, click the link in our show notes so you can get 20% off this amazing course. I know you're gonna love it. It's helped my family in so many ways. Thanks for listening, everyone. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. So it's like, it's that catch 22 out of your body. Like I'm going to take more caffeine, but I'll get more tired because the adenosine start receptors go higher. I mean, like people are going to be like jaw drop because it's like one of my friends already, like he is, and I love him that he's, he's hugely against like caffeine, you know, cause I have a lot of patients. Yeah. You know, I like, I like to have a good cup of coffee once in a while. I can't do a lot of it. I'll do some chai tea or something, but uh, I can tell too, at times whenever I am drinking something, he kind of looks over at that and he goes, he'll say, he goes, yeah, building up that tolerance, aren't you, buddy? And I'm like, oh, heavens. But, you know, there's something spiritual about having like a good hot cup of coffee. But I'm like, you're right, overdoing it. It's just not moderation. So people want to get, you know, they want to have energy. That's the thing. They just want to get, you know, I want to stay awake. So we see the caffeine relationship. You talk a lot about the mechanisms even of like sleep and how that helps with our circadian rhythms. I mean, this is a general question, but Ari, go, go with what you, how, how I want to say, like, we see the importance of sleep um, about building that circadian rhythm to great energy. And what are some of the tips that you would, you would suggest to us about how to get into a better state of sleep with circadian rhythm? What, what's your suggestions there? There's two layers to this story. So we have 
it's kind of cool because there's there's certain um there's certain areas that i was talking about seven eight years ago as really important to this energy story and nobody was really talking about them and now so many people are talking about them they've become almost commonplace and i'm kind of I'm a little bit happy about that and I'm a little bit pissed off about it because <laughs> this used to be sort of my my unique shtick in so many ways and and now it's not but I'm also happy that awareness has has increased to the point where so many people have heard some of this stuff. We have a central clock in the brain and that is our central circadian clock it's in the suprachiasmatic nucleus and um this central biological clock circadian clock is like a 24-hour clock that regulates our waking and sleep cycles and it also ties directly in with many different neurotransmitters it influences dopamine and serotonin and gaba and orexin which is a wakefulness neurotransmitter and many of these other neurotransmitters affect mood and motivation and drive and uh, indirectly energy levels and relaxation and sleep the circadian rhythm also ties into many different hormones and uh, it ties into testosterone it ties into melatonin, of course. It ties into cortisol. It ties into growth hormone. It ties, ties into insulin sensitivity. It ties into thyroid hormone. These are big, important hormones that affect all of them together, affect every cell in our body. Okay. Um, we also have peripheral circadian clocks. And it turns out this is a newer scientific discovery. We have clocks in almost every tissue of our body from our skin to our muscles, to our liver, to our intestines, to our heart. Wow. They, they've all got their own clocks. So we've got the central clock in the brain. We've got peripheral clocks in all the tissues of our body. And the central clock in the brain is primarily responsive to light inputs. That's in the literature, they call it a Zeitgeber. I don't know why they use a German word, but it means basically environmental influence trigger factor some something along those lines that basically environmental inputs that is that impacting influencing and regulating that system the central clock in the brain primarily responsive to light the peripheral clocks throughout the rest of the body are primarily responsive to food inputs okay oh my goodness so they keep going i'm writing this down no i'm here in the click and i'm so sorry but this is great yeah no problem okay. and then there's other zeitgebers that influence the system as well um movement can influence it to some degree and temperature can influence it actually to a larger degree than than we might have imagined uh, a few years ago there was some studies done of hunter-gatherer sleep cycles where they actually found temperature to be a fairly big factor light and nutritional inputs are huge respectively for the central and the peripheral clocks there's many things that we can do to optimize both but let me just sort of say let me give an, a nice like context to understand this so i've said it regulates all these neurotransmitters all these hormones and other processes in addition we know that melatonin for example is most people think of it some people think of it as just a sleep supplement some people know that it's actually produced by our own bodies that it's uh us people think it's a sleep hormone it turns out melatonin is actually the most important mitochondrial antioxidant in existence it's not just something that's involved in sleep it's directly involved in protecting our mitochondria from damage in addition to that, there's an internal mitochondrial antioxidant system and detoxification system that's designed to protect our mitochondria, where they, they protect our, themselves. This involves things like glutathione and catalase and superoxide dismutase to 
again, neutralize stress, neutralize toxicants. The melatonin that's designed to bathe the mitochondria each night also recharges that internal antioxidant and detoxification system each night. So if you're suppressing melatonin levels, you are going to accumulate mitochondrial damage as a result of that. And here's one data point. We know that just being in regular homes under standard home lighting, uh, LED fluorescent home lighting in your home, nothing fancy, just being in your home at night suppresses melatonin levels by 50 to 70%. Oh man. So most so people are basically damaging your cells. Yeah. Most people are massively suppressing this critically important mitochondrial hormone every night, year after year for decades. Okay. And that's not even to mention screens and phones and TVs and all that other stuff. So another layer to the story is autophagy and mitophagy. Every night while we sleep, our cells are designed to clean up, clean up the damaged dysfunctional cell parts. And the mitochondrial version of this is called mitophagy, which is cleaning up damaged and dysfunctional mitochondrial parts pinching off the damaged dysfunctional parts, sending it off for degradation, keeping the, he the healthy part of the cell. And, um, and this allows us, it's like quality control for our mitochondria. So imagine like in a factory, imagine I always picture like uh, people at a conveyor belt in a factory line and inspecting the parts as they come down the conveyor belt and going, oh, this one's damaged, let's toss it, right? Well, that process is designed to, um, to happen every night while we sleep. And it's essential to maintaining a healthy pool of mitochondria. Well, if you're hindering that process of mito mitophagy from poor circadian rhythm and therefore poor sleep, not enough sleep or poor quality sleep, you are going to accumulate damaged and dysfunctional mitochondria. So these are some of the main mechanisms of how the circadian rhythm ties into this, this energy and mitochondrial story. One other thing I'll mention here is you know, I mentioned all these different neurotransmitters and hormones that are being coordinated with the circadian rhythm. And many of them are meant to work in tandem with one another. As one goes up, the other goes down, or at certain times of day, one goes up, then it goes down at the, at the other time of day. Um, all of these hormones, thyroid hormone, testosterone, cortisol, melatonin, they all work like this, and they're designed to work in tandem with one another. There's an expression, if you have an orchestra but no, no conductor, you have noise. And if you have an orchestra with a conductor, you have music. Mm. And what we want is hormonal music happening in our body, not hormonal noise in our body. And the way we do that is by giving the optimal inputs into the circadian rhythm so that it can work properly. The optimal light inputs, the optimal food inputs. So, and this is blowing my mind, Ari. Okay, so it helps me think with Chinese medicine. So we, I'm gonna research this more for my own sake. So certain times of day with the circadian rhythm, there could be certain parts of your brain lit up or certain parts that actually help you produce a certain neurotransmitter or a hormone, either they're inhibitory or excitatory at certain times of day. So I'm going to research this more throughout the day. So that symphony is occurring. So I want everybody out there to remember that because that can explain why there's mood changes or the way you're, you're feeling, you know, this part of the day as compared to another day. And I'm just, this is just, this is great. Uh, I was going to ask you about that. I was like, does it correlate throughout the hours of the day? So I'm going to research this more. Oh man, there's so many questions. I, I could keep going with you. This is great. Um, when we talk about your sleep having the best optimization, we're talking about tablets, we're talking about how to increase your range. Um, we know we already talked about health. We talked about the, um, the gut and such. Um, 
I wanted to ask you though, like with the energy and I know we're getting close to, I know your time's precious, but we're talking about like sleep and how to optimize that. We're talking about energy production. What, this is a question for my, my own sake. I think that maybe it's a naive question. Why is it often overlooked though? I mean, I mean, it's off the grid. Like, you know, you see, like you say, our medical healthcare system never really looks at mitochondria, but I, I would have to assume though, like our textbooks, I mean, we have textbooks that have biochemistry textbooks. And it tells us like, this is where energy production comes from. And they, but you never see like, you know, medications given to help increase that. Can I, even if it's two minutes, I mean, Ari, I'm just like, is, is there anything that you want to say to that? I just, I'm not bashing medical system. I just don't see why it's never focused on. There's a lot I want to say to this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you have to well, go overboard, man. I just, I just wanted to ask, you can give your own sense. I just, it just, I'm just thinking this. So number one, the understanding of mitochondria, and I'll be charitable, I guess, in my response first, at least, or maybe the entirety of my response will be charitable. First of all, it takes 15, 20 years before new scientific understandings are actually integrated into conventional medicine. Oh, wow. There's a huge delay between sort of something being discovered before it actually gets integrated into medical practice as we know it. The understanding of mitochondria as being central to our health, central to our risk of diseases, something I didn't touch on much here, but is, is very central to our risk of many diseases, is central to our resilience to stressors, to our resistance to stressors, is central to our energy levels, and obviously this fatigue and human energy regulation story, and is actually central to aging, longevity, and the rate of cellular aging itself. It's very mitochondrial health is very central to that. All of that is a relatively new scientific discovery. No, mm. it's really mostly in the last decade that the, our understanding of those things has been built out. It's still not well known um, by mm. most practitioners. And it's certainly far from being integrated into any kind of standard of care practice. Now, all, all of that framing of the issue again, is charitable. It's charitable because it assumes that even 15 or 20 years from now, that it would be integrated into common medical practice. And the truth is it probably won't. Why? Number one, because it's complex. Number two, uh, because it revolves around, you know, enhancing, optimizing mitochondrial health revolves around changing your nutrition and lifestyle, living in a different way. Guess what? Mm -hmm. That's not very profitable. The, the conventional medical model, as you know, revolves around the, the simple question of what is profitable. It is less about as, uh, orienting to helping people from the frame of what is actually driving disease and how can we fix the root causes in the best, most complete way possible to minimize the overall disease burden, and much more about private for-profit companies figuring out how they can make lots of money treating various diseases. And so the whole orientation of it is such that it is at odds with everything that I'm telling you here. So as long as the, the institution revolves around that kind of orientation, instead of actually fixing the real root causes of the problem, then everything that I'm telling you about here will never be integrated into conventional standard of care practice. That is some eye-widening information. I've, I've been wanting to know about that for a, a while now because I just didn't know why it would never be pushed. And it's truth that, um, that you don't see it pushed in 
our healthcare systems, especially like I, I've had family members in the hospital and we, you talked about nutrition and you see it all the time. Like I'm pretty amazed. Uh, I'm not putting down the, the caregivers that gave my mom care or people I've known, but you know that they have this condition and it's like literally they have pudding and jello and uh, heavy dairy products. And you're just like, you're just feeding um, a beast within the body. And and I want to touch on that. I want you to like, we talk about gut health and how it's related to our energy levels um, about this. And what are like in our nutrition, what are some of the biggest ways? Like, I mean, even things you say to cut out, what are some of the biggest ways to actually optimize our energy production? And, and does that relate to like different types of foods, different types of superfoods? Can you, can you touch on that for us? Sure. Well, I'll give you a, a quick overview of some of the key sort of mechanisms of how this works. Basically, if we have poor nutrition as a, as a main thing, and then if we also insert certain environmental toxicants, alcohol consumption, antibiotic use, things like that, and most of us got exposed, I got exposed to lots of rounds of antibiotics as a kid, these things have lasting consequences, including sometimes actually causing certain species of bacteria to go extinct. Mm. Interestingly, we, are all, we all come into this world with a unique, like our fingerprints, like a unique microbiome with certain bacterial species that are actually passed from our ancestors that are unique to our ancestral lineage. Unfortunately, it's the case that modern lifestyles, modern medical treatments, particularly antibiotics, um, can actually cause a severing of the transmission of those microbiomes to be transmit transmitted to the next generation. They can wipe out certain ancestral uh, species of bacteria that we've that have been passed in our family lineage for thousands of years. Now, the gist of that is those different factors disrupt microbiome health, disrupt gut barrier integrity in such a way that now you've got an imbalance of of bacteria there. Many bacteria are producing a toxin called LPS lipopolysaccharide, combined with the weakened gut barrier. The LPS further weakens the gut barrier and promotes intestinal permeability or leaky gut. Okay. And when that happens, now you've got compounds from the, from the diet foods that are creating undigested food particles that are leaking directly into the bloodstream. Mm -hmm. And when you have not fully digested food particles leaking into the bloodstream, you're creating an immune and inflammatory reaction. And the immune inflammatory reaction, again, is a danger signal to mitochondria. Okay? In, a, in addition to that, the LPS itself from the bacteria, the lipopolysaccharide endotoxin, is also leaking directly into the bloodstream. And that LPS in the bloodstream, it's called endotoxemia, is linked with many different diseases, neurological diseases, cancer, heart disease, insulin resistance and diabetes, obesity, many, many problems are the result of this. And the LPS, guess what, is directly toxic to mitochondria. So the LPS oh is also a danger signal to mitochondria. So when you've got intestinal permeability, when you've got poor gut health, you are communicating to the mitochondria, it is not safe to produce lots of energy. So that's a couple of the main ways that it links. Another way that it links is um, through the production of short chain fatty acids things like propionate and, and butyrate in particular. Butyrate has a number of important roles. It has anti-inflammatory healing effects on the gut lining itself. It's one of the most powerful um, anti-inflammatory compounds for the brain as well that's neuroprotective. And it enhances energy production at the mitochondrial level as well. So the butyrate is this amazing compound. 
One of the other mechanisms of how this works is that uh, the certain phytochemicals in the diet from certain plant foods are converted by certain microbes in the gut into other compounds, the most notable of which is elagic acid, which is found in small amounts in a number of different berries and in largest amounts in pomegranates and chestnuts. And this elagic acid gets converted by specific microbes in the gut into another compound called urolithin A. And urolithin A is pretty much the most powerful promoter of mitophagy, this cleanup process at the mitochondria level that we've ever discovered. So we get compounds from plant foods that are converted by microbes in our gut into mitochondrial cleanup mechanisms. We get compounds from the diet particularly from resistant starches, things like beans, things like rice. And if you cook your rice in coconut oil and let it cool, it'll have more resistant starch. Things like oats, things like potatoes are another wonderful source of resistant starch. We get this resistant starch in our diet. It feeds these bacterial colonies in the gut that produce large amounts of butyrate, which is gut protective, neuroprotective, enhances energy production at the mitochondrial level. And when we consume a diversity of fibers and a large amount of plant fibers in our diet, we're feeding microbial diversity in the gut, which is a key essential trait of a healthy gut is large amount of diversity there. Mm -hmm. And we're feeding the bifidobacteria. There's research showing that just going from one study in particular showed that women who went from 18 grams of fiber a day to uh, consuming 18 grams of fiber to 30 grams of fiber a day tripled the bifidobacteria in their intestines, which is this colony of healthy bacteria that are producing all kinds of beneficial compounds uh, that support immune health, that support nutrient adequacy, that support butyrate, short-chain fatty acid production. So you're getting these widespread beneficial effects also keep the gut barrier integrity healthy. You know, again, so we want, we want to think about diversity, large amount and diversity of plant fibers, types of plant fibers and plant foods consumed, getting adequate resistant starches, feeding the short chain fatty acids. And we want to think about large amounts of a variety of different phytochemicals that are going to be converted into other beneficial metabolites that support mitochondrial health in in other ways as well i mean i love that like just i did not know that like resistant starches created higher amounts of butyrate because i mean many times i've supplemented individuals with butyrate to help encourage the strength of their uh, their gut flora and so i mean and some people would even say like why would you ever eat a white potato I was like no white potato has its has its benefits and so does oats you know it just depends on the person's and their genetic makeup this is such good info now, I want to talk about this. We're talking about foods, superfoods. What are your top supplements? And I, and I want you to talk about the things that I've seen on, on your site and on your work because I, I really am going to order some to uh, start checking with my mom because she's had Lyme infections and, and Epstein-Barr, you know, verified with blood work and urinalysis. I need to get that into her brain to help her memory. But what are your top supplements for like mitochondria, energy enhancement? Because you have tons of research about this. And I want you to talk about the things that you've produced as well. Let us know what's going on with the, the supplements. Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of my favorites is rhodiola rosea. There's absolutely amazing research on rhodiola rosea in the context of chronic fatigue and burnout. Some of the research is so impressive that it actually made me skeptical the first time I saw it. I'm like, this, <laughs> this can't be true. It can't be this, this effective this quickly. 
But there's research where they've looked at people with burnout and chronic fatigue, where they've shown cutting fatigue symptoms, cutting irritability, cutting mood-related symptoms in half in, in some cases, a week, in some cases, two or three weeks. Um, so massive reductions in these different um, aspects of ratings of burnout, ratings of, of fatigue and irritability. In other words, increases in energy levels. So rhodiola rosea is a, is a very powerful one. There's, maybe I won't get into all the mechanisms of how it interacts, but um, this acts as something I wish we talked about earlier, kind of deserving of its own thing, is hormesis and the effect that hormetic stress has on building up bigger and stronger mitochondria. So one key piece of the puzzle is the different factors that are causing the mitochondria to shut down energy production. The other big factor is how big and strong are your mitochondria? Do you have a Ferrari in your cells or do you have a moped engine in your cells? <laughs> and most adults, especially older adults, have a moped engine in your cells. And unfortunately, no amount of op just optimizing your, your diet um, or taking supplements will take you from a moped engine to a Ferrari engine. That is done through hormetic stress, through the application of things like heat and cold and fasting and exercise done in the right way in an intelligent way to build up that system into a more robust way we can create mitochondrial biogenesis. Now, certain phytochemicals, and rhodiola rosea is one of them, act as, as types of hormetic stressors to some degree. Sometimes they're called exercise mimetics because they mimic, they, they feed into some of these same physiological pathways, biochemical pathways, that other types of hormetic stressors like exercise do. And um, rhodiola rosea can, to some degree, stimulate mitochondria to grow bigger and stronger and can stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis. Uh, so this is a wonderful way of doing that. Another one that is a powerful stimulator of mitochondrial growth and biogenesis is PQQ. I was challenged myself to remember the full name and I think I never get it right, but it's, the, it's, it's abbreviated as PQQ for a reason, let me tell you, because mm -hmm. it's, it's like pyrolo, <laughs> py, pyroloquinolone quinine or something like that. Um, <laughs> But this is found in small amounts in many different foods. Uh, I think the richest food is um, cacao, cocoa. And, and this is another powerful promoter of, of mitochondrial biogenesis. Cocoa also has epicatechin as well and some other flavanols and, and compounds that are also act as xenohormetic stressors and bolster mitochondrial health. Some of the other ones that I'm a huge fan of, astaxanthin. Astaxanthin is a carotenoid pigment. This is where salmon get their pink color from, um, mm -hmm. also where flamingos get their pink color from. And it's, it's a, a carotenoid that originally comes from algae and that accumulates up the food chain as different animals eat it. And it accumulates also in human tissues, the same way that it accumulates in salmon. They just eat more of it than we do, so it turns their flesh pink. But this astaxanthin has a, a unique chemical structure to it that actually embeds itself in mitochondrial membranes and stabilizes them and protects them from damage. Oh. So astaxanthin is, is another wonderful compound to help keep, keep mitochondria healthy and stable. There's some really interesting research on it, enhancing athletic performance and just stabilizing mitochondria, uh, mitochondrial membranes from injury. Acetyl-L-carnitine is another one widely talked about, of course, that helps uh, fatty acids get into the mitochondria. This can be, in some cases, particularly with carnitine deficiency, 
um, like sometimes occurs with with vegan with vegans, for example, um, this can be a game changer for some people. And in older adults with chronic fatigue, there's research showing 40 to 55 percent reductions in fatigue scores uh, within about eight weeks of just using acetyl L-carnitine. And I'll mention one more here: uh, NT Factor, which is a mm. phospholipid supplement. Um, our membranes, our cell membranes and mitochondrial membranes are composed of what are called phospholipids, things like phosphatidylcholine, phosphatidylethanolamine. And um, as mitochondria get damaged, the phospholipid membranes of them get damaged. Well, there's an amazing uh, set of research, a number of studies that have been done related to this. There's a, an impressive a review by a researcher named Garth Nicholson, and it's called Lipid Replacement Therapy. And it talks about how consuming dietary phospholipids in this way can actually go into your, get into your blood and get into your cells and into your mitochondria where it can actually replace the damaged phospholipids in the membrane with healthy phospholipids. And if wow. the physical structure of the mitochondria is more intact and healthy, the mitochondria will work better to produce energy. Now, this isn't just uh, sort of speculation based on the mechanism that I just explained. It's like, well, you know, healthier mitochondrial membranes leads to energy. You don't have to take my word for it. This has actually been tested in many studies in different kinds of chronic fatigue. They've tested it in older people, aging associated chronic fatigue. They've tested mm -hmm. it in people with obesity, obesity, obesity related chronic fatigue. They've tested it in people with a more obscure types of chronic fatigue, like Gulf War illness. They've tested it in, um, of course, people with ME-CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome. And across the board, study after study, they show that within weeks, some of these studies are only three weeks long, some are 12 weeks long, they show 25 to 45% increases in energy levels just from taking this one supplement that helps repair mitochondrial membranes. So these are, these are some of my favorites for sure. Mm -hmm. We can do the research because it's on your website too, because I love how you listed them. Like, yes, and it's not complicated. I like the way you put it in there. All right, it's just like, boom, bare bones. This is what it does for you. And you combine those. You combine them into some supplementation. And I had them pull up and um, I told my assistant already to order me some. Um, <laughs> and already, can you just touch base on some of these stuff like the, the brain charge and stuff? Or, you know, we talked about ultra brain and yeah. we talked about just mitochondria. I mean, in energogenesis, it's like, I think these are like some of the like very important things, especially like you say, there's a community out there that we see so much uh, fatigue. We see so much infection and people are having degenerating brains. Um, like, can you just touch base on these supplements that you've created? These are great. Yeah. Thank you for, for doing that. I, I always hesitate to sort of be salesy and pitchy with regard to my own stuff. You know, many of these, these formulas, have many of the compounds I just mentioned. There's lots of compounds I, I didn't mention just for the sake of brevity. I, I don't want to talk to you for an hour with all my long list of supplements, but um, I, I'll say this. Um, I'm actually thinking of, I'm debating whether or not I, to even continue doing supplements that I'm in the way that I'm doing them because my costs to produce these supplements are so high that financially it's not really sustainable to continue doing this. Um, the way I do things with supplements is so different from how everybody else does supplements. It's kind of crazy. I mean, people who know the supplement industry tell me I'm crazy for doing what I'm doing. And I, they might be right, I don't know. 
Um, <laughs> but basically, the, the, the gist of it is this. I mean, financially, to give you a sort of an insider's look into the supplement industry, most companies are trying to create a product that costs them three, four, five, maybe on the high end, eight or ten dollars to produce. And they sell it for usually something like at least three and oftentimes closer to 10 times markup on that. My costs to produce my formulas are about 10 times higher than what most people are doing. And so mm -hmm. I, I have very little profit margins. And the reason why I do this is because I'm basically just trying to get so many amazing compounds in there at actually real clinically effective dosages. So, for example, in my formula energy essentials uh, and superfoods, I have certain compounds in there, certain superfoods like spirulina. Okay. And so you could look at my greens and the, the person who's not savvy, who's not knowledgeable in this area, doesn't know how to do this. Partly why it's, it's difficult for me to keep doing this model. But the somebody might go oh ari's formula has spirulina this other formula this other greens formula also has spirulina what people don't realize is that formula has 50 milligrams of spirulina my formula has 2500 milligrams of spirulina <laughs> right yeah. this is not the same thing there's a difference between uh doing walking five steps versus running a marathon right? You could yeah. say they're both exercise, but there's a very different physiological effect. The same is true with taking compounds, right? If, if you want the benefits of taking a compound, you have to take it in a clinically effective dose. And what most companies are, are doing is they're, they're putting one-tenth, one-twentieth, the actual real effective dose of these ingredients in their formulas. So my costs are very high because I'm putting in uh, effective dosages. But Anyway, uh, Energenesis is my mitochondrial formula. It's packed with all kinds of goodies, NT factor, phospholipids, the one I just mentioned. Um, it's got astaxanthin in there. It's got a number of xenohormetic compounds. It's got PQQ. It's got, um, geez, what else does it have? It has Shodan ashwagandha in it, which is also an amazing compound. It's got acetyl L-carnitine in it. It's got so much good stuff to help address mitochondrial energy production on, on many different levels. Ultrabrain has rhodiola rosea. That's sort of a key ingredient. It's also got lion's mane mushroom, which a dual extract of, of lion's mane mushroom, very, very potent extract. Um, and lion's mane also, it promotes BDNF in the brain, brain-derived mm -hmm. neurotrophic factor, has a powerful impact on reducing depression and anxiety, improving cognitive function in, in older people with cognitive decline. Uh, lion's mane is absolutely amazing. And then in addition to that, it's got choline sources from choline CDP, alpha GPC. It's got um, many other compounds, agmatine that are designed to boost nitric oxide level that have antidepressant effects. It's got um, an herb called polygala, which also has, which is used in Chinese medicine, um, which is also has impressive effects on brain function. Uh, and lots and lots of other good stuff. It's got 15 ingredients in there. So, you know, these are, I, I've really tried to create, my goal was to create the best formulas in the world in their specific categories. The challenge is the expense to produce them is massive. I, I agree. I think when I look at just uh, the brain um, work, like I've had patients that have like, I wanted to check it on them and see if they, they would help their Lyme disease, their 
their Epstein Barr brain. And and uh, like my mom, she's had a stroke before, you know, and like and be able to help heal like brain tissue. And I, the one thing I'm so impressed of, Ari, seriously, is that in the supplement realm, you say like you know having a small amount of like um, a, a really uh, clinically active or effective amount of like vitamin B. But the cool thing about when you look at your ingredients is that if you guys look on his bottle, like he'll just say, what's the other ingredient? Cellulose. It's basically a gel capsule. It's, 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 it's the capsule that he put everything in there because I mean, and I'm not speaking for you, Ari, but like people out there, if you, a lot of times you look at an ingredient of, of a capsule and they'll put a minute amount of the actual vitamin, but the rest of it's like silicone dioxide and magnesium stearates and all. And I said, and you're getting a whole bunch of fillers because they had to push a lot of these ingredients through these shafts to get into the pill. And so they just fill it up and you get a little bit of the actual vitamin mineral that you actually need. And the thing about ours is that you look at and it's filled. That's mm-hmm. why I was so impressed with it. So I, I'm just saying, you guys, check it out. And I, I mean, I hope it turns around like where it, you know, the margins get better for you. And I want people to go out there and check this out because I'm going to buy a lot of boxes of them. If that's the case, you <laughs> let me know. I really mean it. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying that lightly, but for the people out there, Ari, this has been such a great interview. I'm, I'm telling you, they're going to want you to have you back on here. Um, but I want to know, like, where, where can they find you? I know we have the energy, energy blueprint, but do they? Is there any other place, like, on your website? What's the best place to reach you at? The best place is is theenergyblueprint.com. That's where you can find my work. I, and I've got lots of free eBooks with all kinds of great content and and free webinars that people can opt in for. Um, I've got a great one on breathing for energy. So if people look up, they can even type into Google breathing for energy webinar, Ari Witten or energy blueprint, um, register for that webinar. I do a live webinar every week. And, uh, that webinar is got a whole bunch of amazing information, none of which we touched on just now. So it'll be all new compared to everything I went over in this, in this interview. And I think it'll benefit a, a whole lot of people. Oh, everybody, please go and follow Ari, go, go subscribe, become part of his website. We thank you so much. Dr. Axe says, thank you. Courtney says, thank you. I do. And hopefully my friend, like maybe we can, we can stay in touch. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much for joining us. I know it took a lot out of your time. Great interview. Have fun in Costa Rica. And uh, yeah, I'll let you know how the, uh, the supplementation goes for my, my patients. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome. So much. I look forward to hearing about your results. And I think, I think you. you'll notice some good effects. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Motley. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you.